Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 152 for July 10th, 2008. Listener feedback number 45. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. For a month of unlimited online meetings absolutely free, go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, episode 152. And from his bunker, deep within the mountain, they know as Irv. What is the mountain at Irv in Irvine? Saddleback. Saddleback. Deep within Saddleback Mountain, Mr. Steve Gibson in beautiful Irvine, California. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We're we're rapidly coming up on three years. I love it. 152. <laughs> four weeks to go. That's kind of neat. I don't know what we're going to do for our four for a three-year celebration, but um, our entry into the fourth year, but we'll find something fun to do. Well, I read a lot of of the feedback we've received from people over the last couple of weeks, and it's just gratifying for them to say they love the podcast and they want another 150 weeks and they don't know what they would do if it stopped. So that would be bad. We have no plans to stop it, folks. No. We're going to just get going. As long I mean, as you're, in, you're, you're in a whole new era now with your studio and your yeah. staff. And, yeah, and I'm starting to record these uh, these uh, video versions that we do. And I don't know if Security Now really lends itself to a video version, but if people want it, I'll be glad to do it. You know, um, uh, uh, Certainly the Gadget podcast does, because then you could see the gadget. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we're doing a lot more stuff in the Twit Live realm where we have interest, like Waz is going to be on on uh, Thursday, so... Those will probably Very start cool. putting out as video podcasts too. Yeah, but we can. But if you tune in live, eleven o'clock every Tuesday morning, eleven a.m. Pacific, two p.m. Eastern, eighteen hundred UTC on Tuesdays, you can watch us do it live. If that does, if that's not a spoiler, might spoil the show for you. Uh, let's get to before we get to uh, it's a Q and A segment. We got twelve great ones. Before we do that, do we have any uh, anything to catch up on? Any errata, addenda? Add- oh, every week there's security news, which was the original concept you had for this podcast. Yes, um, yes, a number of things uh, over in the in the new uh, exploits and problems category. Uh, I wanted anyone who is using. Um, what used to be called Microsoft's Great Plains Accounting, right. also as Microsoft Dynamics. It's now called Microsoft Dynamics GP. They sort of merged them all together. Anyway, um, this is a you know a very popular accounting program which Microsoft has naturally extended to make it network capable, and in the process it opened it to remote exploit. Oh boy! So there are multiple now in the public remote code execution exploits for Microsoft Dynamics GP updates are available. So anyone who's using them or or whose corporation is using this, you just want to make sure 
you've got yourself updated because, you know, the last thing you want is hackers getting into your business's accounting system and rummaging around. No kidding. Um, I wanted to make sure that Mac people knew that they needed to get updated to 10.5.4 because there were some HTML rendering um, exploits. I think I referred to them last week, but now we're beginning to see um, uh, the public appearance of some exploits. Not widespread yet, but there was a there was a some mistakes found in what what Apple calls the WebKit, which are used by different things that render HTML, like Safari and Apple Mail and so forth. And uh, and also uh, 10.5.4 fixed some bugs in third party apps that that Apple bundles you know, in with the whole OS. So definitely want to make sure you stay current there. Um, and lastly, the common code base for the whole Mozilla family of browsers, Firefox, Thunderbird, SeaMonkey, um, have a problem. So there are updates available. So if you're using Firefox, Thunderbird, or SeaMonkey, you want to, again, make sure that you update those. Firefox 3.0 has the improvements that are necessary. But, if, for example, if you were using Firefox 2 and hadn't yet moved to 3, um, Moving to three is a good thing when you're comfortable doing so. I'm always reluctant to push people into new versions. You know, I've really learned my own lesson with Service Pack 3 of Windows XP. It's like, oh, boy, was that a mistake. Um, but uh, in, so if you are comfortable moving from version, you know, major version 2 of Firefox to 3, that's one way to solve this problem. Otherwise, make sure you're updated. And finally, this is just like browser day, Opera. Um, I just, like last week, updated to 9.5 from, I think I was at 9.3. And 9.5 is a really nice sort of a, a dot .x update, not quite a major version, but a, but a strong minor version update that changed the UI around a little bit and, uh, and I think really cleaned things up. I like what Opera's doing. However, even in this period, in this little window, I was surprised when I when I checked on things that there's an, an incremental security patch to 9.5, bringing it up to 9.51. And, and, so, and so sure enough, when I checked, you know, I clicked on Opera's menu and said, check for updates. It says, oh, you got, a, there's a new update available. So Opera users want to bring themselves current as well. All right. Very in, good. In news, the big news, and, you know, our listeners are clued in. I can't tell you how many... Uh, notes I have received in case I didn't know about TrueCrypt version 6.0. <laughs> yeah, I got a few. I get a few of those too. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to thank everybody for making sure I knew. This was a release on the 4th of July, which of course in the U.S. is our Independence Day. And um, uh, there were a number of new features. Uh, people who are using 5 will probably want to move up to 6. Um, among other things, the the volume format was changed to increase the redundancy of critical information in the header. One of the gotchas, the potential gotchas of an encrypted, of any kind of like, well, really any kind of encryption, as, as our listeners know, is good encryption turns data, which is readable, into pseudo-random noise. Absolutely, if it's sufficiently good, it's indistinguishable from pure random noise. Well, that makes data recovery a real problem um, because, for example, 
um, you know, anything that goes in and tries to read the file system, unless it's able to decrypt the file system, it can't go in and like, you know, find lost clusters, uh, fix directory entry mistakes and so forth, because the entire thing is just random noise. That means that that an encrypted file system is more is more dependent on the encryption header data than a non-encrypted file system. So one of the things that these guys did in moving from five to six is they've they've made their volume format, the encrypted volume format, more bulletproof by by putting a redundant set of headers at the end of the the volume format and a way to reliably locate that so that if the system is unable to properly read the the, the front, it'll be able to get it from the back and and use it just the same. Um, one of the other cool things they did, you know, we've been talking about multi-core stuff here in the last few weeks because I've I've been frustrated with my lack of use of my own multi-core workstation, and then I of course built a big multi-core monster for doing media and other kinds of, of compression stuff. Um, TrueCrypt 6.0 adds multi-core support for compression. And the performance gain you get is directly proportional to how many extra cores you give it. So if you have a dual core system, it'll be the the compression decompression path will run twice as fast. And if you have a quad core system, it'll run four times as fast. And I heard you over the weekend, Leo, uh, on your on your weekend show talking to some guy who had, I think he was buying a dual quad core system. Yeah, yeah. overkill. And it, was, <laughs> it, was like, it was And it was less than $1,000. That was had the amazing thing, yeah. Coupon or something, yeah. Is there a so, disadvantage, I guess is the question. If you get it for 1000 bucks, should you avoid it even so, just because of problems with the multiple cores? Well, there aren't there aren't compatibility problems with the multiple cores. I did find myself, as I, as I was listening to your side of the conversation, um, I, I found myself thinking, okay, well, if it's a, it's got to be something has been cheated from the system. I right, mean, he probably right. he, he do, can't have graphics that's running at high performance for that price. He probably doesn't have a really high speed front side bus and not high speed memory as or or not much memory. I mean, you know, that's just a really low price. Well, here's the for- funny thing: is these quad core chips are now about two or three hundred bucks each. Uh, right. And uh, he did actually have a decent NVIDIA graphics card, not the top of the line, but I think it was a ninety eight hundred. Um, so he wasn't yeah. he wasn't suffering there. I didn't ask him uh, uh, about the bus speed, but I think I don't know if how many choices you have if you put one of those quad core chips in. I think this stuff has just fallen in price. Wow. Well, and of course, you really need to provide these things with power. Right. I mean, the, the, right. These, you know, the, as I think I mentioned, the heat sink on the new Intel quad core. Oh, yeah. I, I had to literally redesign the fan <laughs> mounting a little bit because right. it, it was like this huge mushroom that wouldn't fit in the case any longer because they, you know, and they were saying, hey, we just increased this, the, uh, you know, efficiency and size of our heat sink. It's like, uh-huh. Yeah. And it won't fit in the case anymore. Right. So, yeah. So that's a downside. So um, I... Uh, oh, and the the last thing is in in TrueCrypt six, they now support a hidden OS, where you're actually able to to hide an OS in. The, remember how they used to have a, a hidden partition, right, right? Where you could have like a you, you could say, well, that that's just noise at the end at the end of the Slack space. They called the it partition. plausible deniability, where you just, right. it didn't look like it was anything. And you and now there with, with 6.0, you're able to create a bootable OS in that space, which is you know, and it, I doesn't I'm not really sure how useful that is, but a lot of people are excited about it. So how I would that to- how would that work? Because 
you'd have to decrypt before you could boot. So uh, they'd have to have a little decryptor stub running in on the master boot record. How would that work? I haven't even looked at it, but yes, essentially you would, you'd need to be able to boot into that optionally, but in some way that gave you plausible deniability. Right. Um, I, I just, I've been so busy. I haven't had a chance to sit down and right. go over it, but I, I, you know, enough people were excited. I think we'll, we'll give it a little bit more attention in the future. Yeah. I did want to mention that there was an interesting report just in terms of sharing sort of you know, reality-based security news, which is what all this is with, with our listeners, of course, uh, a number has has surfaced from a study that, that actually Dell commissioned, um, more than 637,000 laptops are lost, <sighs> annu- are lost annually in airports. Airports Six- alone. Airports alone. Wow. Six- 637,000 laptops last uh, lost every year um 12,000 a week um 67% so two thirds of them are never recovered wow um and uh users who lost their laptops were surveyed in in this report and 53% said their laptops held confidential data yeah well yeah no kidding i mean like whose laptop doesn't have something in it that you wouldn't want people to get um, 42% said their data was not backed up. 16% said they would do th- that. They could do nothing if they lost their laptop traveling on business because they depend upon it. It's like, you know, it's like their portable desktop essentially. And, um, 77 cents, 77% of the people surveyed said that the, said that the chance of recovering a lost laptop was less than 10%. So Jeez. I wanted to. I wanted to remind people again, TrueCrypt 5 and now 6 is a robust technology which is highly recommended for, for encrypting yeah. your laptop. I mean, wow. it's, it's less important, certainly, arguably, to encrypt a, 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 um, a, a desktop system that's not moving around, that, that has no chance of becoming one of those 637,000 right. laptops lost in airports every year. When they say lost, so, they don't mean stolen. They don't mean somebody's ripped them off. They mean they just kind of uh, were left behind, I guess. Yeah, well, the report said that the two highest locations of loss was just going through the security line. Oh, yeah. You know, just the confusion. I, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, Leo, but, like, I'm feeling under tremendous pressure yeah, when yeah, I move, finally— Move, 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 yeah, move. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you got to take everything apart, then you got to get it all through the little scanner tunnel, and then you got to put everything back together again. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of pressure. And you can right. imagine how someone would just forget <laughs> one piece of their little, you know, their world in that process. You'd think they'd make an effort to kind of, you know, hey, there's a laptop here. Hello, anybody? Well, Leo, I mean, I, you and I travel a lot. You've seen how what level of, of yeah. concern there is from anybody. <laughs> Ooh, a laptop. You know, yeah. In the, wow. You, know, you wonder where they're going. Yeah, that's, that's the question. Yeah, no kidding. Um, in another bit of interesting news, and you may, you're, you're clued into all of what's going on enough. You may have heard this. Uh, Blizzard, who makes World of Warcraft, has now adopted a, a bizarrely painted uh, PayPal football for for World of Warcraft, yeah, somebody mentioned that to me, and I thought that's re- so. When you play World of Warcraft now, you can use your football to, to say, "This is me." 
Now, I don't know if you can register an existing PayPal token. Uh, what I found interesting was that they are offering this at a very low price. They're, they're just like PayPal. They're trying to encourage people to cool. use this for authentication. Six dollars and fifty cents. Great deal. And unfortunately, they're all sold out already. <laughs> you go to their wow. website. It's like six fifty. Oops, sorry, sold out. Wow. So I don't know how many they had, how many, how quickly they sold out, or any of the stats for that. But uh, for if we have World of Warcraft listeners. Uh, you should know that there is a way to increase the strength of your authentication using the technologies that we've talked about here many times. And it may well be. I mean, it does. It, it looks like the same technology that PayPal is using. I don't know, but it's worth exploring whether the, if an existing PayPal football might be, you know, transportable. So, that, so you'd be able to register that and wouldn't need to to set up another one. I would I would think, well, I don't know, whether Blizzard is using like a VeriSign backend or whether they've implemented their own backend servers, uh, it's impossible to say. Um, and lastly, in a completely non-security related topic, this relates to a question that I heard you answer um, again during your uh, Tech Guy show. You, you got to stop oh, listening to the radio show. <laughs> Hey, I have a, by the way, I have a warm line I could give you. If you ever hear me say something really stupid, I'll give you this number. You can call in and correct me. Oh, okay. Well, you you don't ever say that, Leo, but I don't think you, I've heard you <laughs> say things. Always stupid, good but... to have, it's always good to have an extra opinion in there. Well, um, at, we know I'm a media guy. I love media. So the question was, it was a question that you spent some time on during the show about, it was a guy who wanted to record flash video. Right. He, he wanted to record like YouTube videos. Right. And, and there have been times when I have wanted to do that. And so I've searched around. I've looked at plugins into web browsers. I've found nothing no. un until now, which is incredibly robust. And this thing is robust because it's some serious technology, which bring you know causes me to respect it a little bit more. Um, it's www.wmrecorder.com, as in Windows Media Recorder.com. So it's just www.wmrecorder.com. However, it's way more than just Windows Media. It does grab Windows Media and also Flash and many other formats. What's cool about it, Leo, is get this. It installs into your system the most popular Windows packet capture library, WinPCAP. Mm-hmm. So what it does is, and this is the reason this thing is so robust, there's never been anything I've encountered that it can't get because it's literally installed a tap into the network interface so that it's watching oh, that's all, interesting. all the traffic going by and it sees anything that your system, you know, while it's running and while you have it primed, it sees any media that your system starts to receive and and pops up a little capture window and just starts sucking it in. So it's literally it's like watching your computer receive it, parsing the all the network traffic, seeing the media streams and capturing them. Does it and, save it Steve as a uh, FLV file in its native form or does it is it capturing it and 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 saving it as a Windows media file? It does no conversion. It's so it's, it's literally it saves the FLV. It's doing a stream capture, wow, and you end great. up with act with absolutely identical, for example, FLV files. So you could they, capture the Stickum stream that we do using this, and you'd have a copy of it. That is really great. 
It's, I mean, it, and I, when I saw they were installing wind PCAP, it's like, whoa, wait a yeah, minute. This yeah. is serious rocket science. Right. So, you know, I mean, so they're, they've done a lot of work in order to make this thing work as well as it does. Um, and in my experience, it pays off. It's not free. Um, I did buy it because I wanted to be able to capture stuff. How much, how um, much, how much was it? It's not expensive. Uh, uh, and they've got a family. The it'll say here. They, They've got a family of tools. Do you do wind, uh, wind capture? Is that the one you want? Or that's the one that has the capture is just the simple capture tool. And yeah, you can get dub, WM dub, Record if you want. So w- the full I package got, is 80 bucks, And if you just want wind capture, 40 bucks. Right. I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. We Somebody also said that the free, and this, I know you're, don't choke, don't get mad at me. The free real player and now real 11 apparently doesn't come with anything else it's just a standalone also allow you right click and save and did you verify that because i yeah. thought on the show oh and it did well i uh i was i was something about my system i think that wasn't doing it but yeah apparently it does and um and i do i what i did verify is that you can download the free real player and not get all you know if you're careful about what you check uh, not get a bunch of extra stuff on there it's just the real player which fi- i guess means real has finally seen the light on that one only took them what five years. That was just yeah. awful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, in fact, I, you know, I some there's some places. For example, um, uh, C, uh, C-SPAN will will produce videos of their stuff that I that uh, you know that for a while I was watching, and it's only in real format. Or I think maybe now it's changed, but it used to be in only in real I, format. Know, it's hard to believe that somebody in this day and age would still do that. Um, awful. Anyway, so there is of course a set of codecs called Real Alternative. Right. That you're able to download. It's just the 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 core real codex that allows your Windows Media Player to then play real content. Right, so. right. That's probably a better way to go. Although they've they've clearly seen the light and they say, oh, you know, people don't download our stuff because we have all this extra stuff we bag and baggage we bring along. So maybe they if we just give them the player, you know, and you don't and if you if you're careful, you don't get the premium and the platinum and all the doohickeys with it. You just click the live free. Uh, who knows? <laughs> and then you tell it, no, I don't want these, uh, you know, yeah. explore, explorer course, bars and add-on bars. And yeah, exactly. Google desktop and everything. Yeah, you have to be a little vigilant. All right, hey, let's, before we get to our questions, I know you have uh, some great questions here for us today. Let me uh, mention uh, our uh, sponsor, Astaro.com, the great folks at Astaro who do the Astaro Security Gateway, the ultimate UTM, uh, ultimate... Uh, Unified Threat Management Box, A-S-T-A-R-O.com is the number. Astaro has really combined the best in uh, breed of both uh, open and commercial security software together into one box that does an amazing amount of stuff. I mean, this thing is incredible. I've got, a, uh, I think, a 120 uh, here that we use. Um, It looks like a router. I mean, it's very simple. There's nothing, you know, it's not a complicated box. But look what goes on when you pass your network traffic through it. Not only do you get, of course, a very powerful firewall among the best in the business, you also get intrusion detection. Uh, you also get um, complete filtering for both the web, and, and, you know, so they can keep an eye on what your people are doing, and uh, on things like peer-to-peer and instant messaging. Um, you can't, if you're running a business, you need to filter the web. You cannot, you know, it's a, it's a risk to you, at least in the United States. I don't know what the laws are internationally that, uh, you know, you have to protect your employees from an un- uh, you know, un- unpleasant workplace and, you know, allowing people to surf porn at work is one of those things you got to stop them from doing. This will do it. It also gives you uh, built-in encryption for your desktops. All your clients can get SMIME or OpenPGP encryption completely transparently. Um, defined user groups or individual users automatically encrypt 
and or sign their emails through the central email encryption inside the gateway before going out so they don't even have to know what's going on. Inbound email automatically decrypted. Um, also verified and virus scanned. There's three different virus scans on here. Uh, two for email, one for the web. I mean, you are just really protected. I just love this box. Scales well, too. If you have, as you increase the number of users, you can go up to 10 uh, different uh, boxes automatically without additional load balancing. So uh, you, as your business grows, so does your Astaro Security Gateway. Find out more by calling 877, the number for Astaro. That's 877-427-8276. You can also visit them online at astaro.com. They also have the new web gateway if uh, all you need is web filtering. Uh, these guys know their stuff. And, you know, solid as a rock. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. They've been with us now for three, almost all of our three years, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, now, let's move on, Steve. Uh, first, before we have a question, do you have a, a fine uh, security now spin right uh, letter of any kind to tell us? Well, you know, so many people uh, who uh, ask questions in this week's episode referred to Spinrite and their <laughs> they love know. of it. I thought they I know. felt a little guilty putting in another, <laughs> another little – it's like, okay, we're going to hear enough about Spinrite All this right. time. Well, let's get right to the questions there. This is uh, uh, starting off with Chris Simpson from Simpsonville, uh, South Carolina. He says, what happens when I die? <laughs> Do you have an – oh, no, there's more. Okay, let me let me elaborate. Because I, I just wanted to let you answer that one. Uh, Steve, I would like to have your opinion on something that's recently affected my life. In May, my grandfather passed away. I'm sorry, from a completely unexpected heart attack. In the days following, my family and I spent hours hunting important financial insurance and medical-related information. I'm sure this is something all families go through, but it did help me realize something very important. What happens when something like this happens to me? Being a network engineer, security plays a very important part of my job and my personal life. I encrypt virtually everything. I use TrueCrypt to encrypt all of my hard disks on my laptops and desktops. I'm trying to figure out the best and most secure way uh, to document my encryption keys should anything ever happen to me. This is actually a really good question. I'd like to know the answer to this one. The problem is I don't want to have my encryption key floating around. I absolutely hate the idea of writing a password down. In previous episodes of Security Now, I remember you talking about having your attorney hold on to your CD full of information while your mom held another while this may work well for you, I have a hard time trusting a lawyer to hold the encryption keys to my entire life. Uh, you know, you, I guess I understand that. But if you ha- I mean, <laughs> um, while I certainly do trust my mom not to snoop, she's not the most security minded person. She'd be likely to leave the information sitting around for anyone to see. I'd appreciate any ideas from the Security Now crew or Security Now listeners. Thanks, Steve and Leo, for a consistently great show. What a, what a great question, Steve. Isn't that great? Yeah. I actually ran I ran across this question a couple of weeks ago and didn't have any more room for it. So I moved it down into today at the, the first question on today's show because I thought it was a really good point. Fantastic. And, yeah. You know, all of us are all, you know, we got everything encrypted. And uh, and the problem, of course, is if for whatever reason, it may not just be if we die, but if we're incapacitated or, you know, some tragedy befalls us or of some sort, you know, how do other people gain access to this stuff I mean, that, that we, you know, that we arguably would want them to have access to? You can imagine that this guy's grandfather, um, if something, you know, I mean, they scurried around trying to locate information that they didn't have put together. So, I, I mean, having some plan to to deal with encrypted content 
is, you know, is right up there with having a will to deal with, you know, the other consequences of your you know, lack of presence on the earth. This is something totally new. I mean, we've never had to deal with it before, but I think uh, I think about this all the time, frankly, is well, how's my wife going to find out all my accounts? They all have passwords on them. I don't even use TrueCrypt, and I think it's an issue. Yep. Well, now, one thing, first of all, I, I saw you s- stop in reading this where I stopped when I was reading it the first time with this guy not trusting his attorney. Right, right. Um, I, I just wanted to say, you know, I mean, I know my attorney. I've got a great friendship with the guy and I mean he's my lawyer because I trust him. If you don't and trust your attorney, you might want to get a better attor- a different attorney. That's sort of <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah. Um there must however, be somebody there, you trust. Well, there are a couple interesting hacks that could be put together to uh, to essentially maintain privacy yet not n- not required um not being required to to trust a single person. For example, you could take a long key that, for example, is a master key to a file that's, you know, on a CD or on a floppy or if you still have that or probably makes makes more sense. Put it on a thumb drive because a thumb drive is going to be, you know, more reliable and and chop the key up into several pieces. For example, if you just chopped it in half, you could give your attorney half. And your mom half or your sister half or something. Now, the point is that you no longer have to trust a single person because the attorney only has half the key. He can't do anything with it unless he gets the other half from the other person. So he can know who the other person is. They can be instructed not to release their half unless the whatever criteria are met. Neither do you then have to absolutely trust the other person. That is to say, it takes you know everyone getting together in agreement in order to to assemble the full key. And you can do, of course, you could chop it into more pieces and give it to more people. The problem with doing that is that that then if any one of these people are for whatever reason unable to provide their their piece of the puzzle, essentially, the the key being the puzzle, then you're completely locked out. So you can do something a little more clever. You can chop it into many many pieces and then allocate the pieces so that there's some redundancy, so that one person has piece one and three and maybe five. Somebody else has, you know, like, like, like your attorney who's more reliable only has piece two. But you see what I mean? You could give multiple pieces to multiple people so that a subset of the total number of people would be able to reassemble the key, um, you know, in, of course, they still have to have the file. So that that's in a safety deposit box or something. And when they unlock that, then they've got all of the other keys that you use. So you can do you know, some, some simple, clever things to, to maintain your privacy and to make the probability of, of that privacy being uh, breached, you know, very, very low while still creating some redundancy so that you're sure when you want it to be, when you want to have someone to have access to this information, they're able to gain it. One of our uh, chat room uh, participants, JMath, suggests a site called Death Switch. Get this. Imagine that you die with, this is deathswitch.com. Imagine that you die with computer passwords in your head, leaving coworkers without access to critical files. Imagine your loved ones can't find your bank accounts. 
or that you die with a secret you long to reveal during your lifetime. Doesn't just have to be passwords. Death Switch is an automated system that prompts you for your password on a regular schedule to make sure you're still alive. When you do not enter your password for some period of time, the system prompts you again several times. With no reply, the computer deduces you are dead or critically disabled, and your pre-scripted messages are automatically emailed to those you named. I love the internet. <laughs> is that wild or what? What, what a bizarre thing. That but is I so mean, strange. You can imagine there are people who are like, oh, this is exactly what I need. You know, you uh, could, yeah. if you if you set up now, you'd have to have some sophisticated friends. But if you uh, knew your friend's uh, PGP key, you could encrypt a message, save it on this something, a system like this. They wouldn't be able to read it. Only your friend would be able to read it. This would that would actually be a, a secure way of doing it as well. As yeah, long as you could the, use PGP. And and the one thing you would want to absolutely, but presumably the reason Death Switch has this content for you is that. You, it's it, it has secrets you want to absolutely make sure right. are not released while you're alive. Otherwise, you're so you know you want to keep entering that password. <laughs> you want to be very sure you don't ha- you don't have a false positive death switch event. <laughs> that would be pretty bad. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I'm sure there are other sites, but I, but that's that was I uh, thought very uh, interesting. Uh, Thank you, J Math, for passing that along in our Stickum chat room. Peggy Willing Peggy Willingham in San Marcos, Texas, wonders. About blocking form. Form was that system we talked about last week. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That uh, caused such consternation in our audience. Steve and Leo, this is probably a stupid question. I'm wondering what at what level form intercepts your, itself into your data stream and if a host's file would bypass the process. I've been a listener for two years and I've been an avid Spinrite fan since version two. The happiest day of my life is when you created a version that supported NTFS as Virgin as a uh, Spinrite version six does now. I came to security now through GRC.com and now listen to almost every podcast Leo does. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for brightening and enlightening my days. Thank you, Peggy. What a nice uh, email. So could okay. you just change? Could you block forms by just changing your host file? Yes. Um, last week's episode went along. Uh, was was long in length because I wanted to squeeze my Bill Gates anecdote in and and so forth and so I didn't want to make it any longer by talking about form blocking approaches but remember from our discussion that that your browser is told to go to go to the website that form is using netwise in order to to induce it to give up its netwise cookie if you block netwise in your hosts file your browser will be unable to do that oh um now that's a problem because the the the, the redirect will fail and you'll go nowhere now they've got technology in there so that the system will learn if something has happened to cause this whole redirection dance that we described in detail uh, last week, remember there's three different redirections where your browser is bounced around between um, sites or servers pretending to be the websites you're going to for the purpose of tricking it into giving up and accepting cookies in a first-party context. So you you can also ask the question, for example, well, what would happen if my browser gave me the ability to block to blacklist 
cookies by domain? Could I blacklist the NetWise domain and that therefore not have my browser accept such a cookie? And yes, you can do that too. So there are, you know, this system is vulnerable to to blocking and it's not difficult actually to block because of the way they've implemented this. It would have been more difficult if they were injecting, for example, JavaScript into the page as they tried to for the first couple years of this in 06 and 07. Now it's not so difficult to block. However, um, the problem is, well, how does that mess things up? What happens is their technology notices something is wrong. You're, you know, you keep trying to get to the same page. You, you never come back from a redirection. Uh, no matter how many times they try to give you a cookie, you never give it back to them. And what they do is they then put you on an okay, I give up list that lasts for 30 minutes. Hmm. And for 30 minutes from, from that time, while you're on that connection, they no longer bounce you around. And so you just have normal form free access to the internet. And then after 30 minutes, they, they, they have, you know, they, they're still wanting to try to get their hooks into you, of course. So they're hoping something has changed and whatever it is that was broken has been fixed. And so they'll, they will again, intercept a web page, bounce around a little bit, see if they can, mm. you know, if they can now, you know, re relock their tracking technology onto you. And if not, they back off again for 30 minutes and you are form free. So there, there are things that could be done to, to block these guys. My problem, of course, is that savvy people are, are going to be aware of this, but the bulk of ISP users won't, and it's not an opt-in process. It's an opt-out process. But you can't. In fact, that if, rather than changing your host file, your better, better procedure would be to go to your ISP and opt out. Yeah, um, that's a little annoying, too, because opting out get, means that you get a special web-wise cookie, which is then similarly, you still have the same dance. You, 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 that web-wise cookie is implanted in every website that you visit so that when it comes out, they're able to say, oh, this person doesn't want to be tracked. Well, you've already been tracked in order to have them know you don't want to be tracked. Right. But they're not saving the information is the difference. Correct. Well, mainly, I would say, if somebody starts using... Is there any way to know? I guess if you see WebWise cookies, that's how you know you're being formed. Ah, uh, we got a good, couple good questions about that. All right, we'll up. get to that. We'll get to that. Let's get to our next question. Uh, this is from Jeffrey in Darlington, or Jeffrey T. Darlington in Beckley, West Virginia. He takes a webmaster's view of forms. Greetings, Steves and Leo. I know it's highly unlikely I'll get this to you in time to make it into this week's Q&A episode, but I'll send oh, it regardless. Surprise. He did make it. <laughs> yes. Surprise. <laughs> Uh, I just finished listening to your uh, latest episode, number 151, about form, and I thought I'd share a tangentially related experience and hopefully solicit your thoughts on the matter. I maintain a moderately popular website, which has enjoyed a rather lengthy decade-long lifespan, an eternity on the web. Unfortunately, it is largely ad-supported. Pauses to allow the boos and hisses to subside. Hey, we're largely ad-supported. I'm not, I'm not hissing. Being privacy and security conscious, I've always wrestled with this issue, but I've never enjoyed pushing ads on my visitors. But being a small-time one-man operation means I need to make concessions to pay the bandwidth bills. While I could easily debate your statements in previous episodes about bandwidth being cheap, suffice it to say that none of my other revenue streams come anywhere near paying my hosting costs. And if it weren't for advertising, I would have folded up shop years ago. Online ads are like politics. Sometimes you have to go with a lesser of two or more 
evils. Recently, I was able to change my hosting arrangement and in the process, become truly the master of my own domain, giving me full control over what advertisers show ads on my site. I've carefully surveyed many of the third-party advertisers out there, found a few I believe to be more reputable than most. As yet, I haven't run into any glaring privacy or malware issues reported by my visitors. It should be noted, however, that I make a statement with every that I make that statement with every available digit and limb tightly crossed, and maybe even a pair of eyes. However, after listening to episode 151 and hearing about Form's odd cookie setting habits, it reminded me of some odd observations I had noticed among my own cookies. My site uses cookies for various services, such as a subscription-based premium service that allows subscribers access to exclusive content for a fee. This service is based largely on the presence of a cookie, which contains, of course, numerous security features to protect both my users' privacy and access to my protected content. However, upon examining the cookies in my browser associated with my domain, I've noticed several unaccounted for by any of my code or any third-party applications I've installed. That's right, just like Form, some other third-party, largely an advertiser, likely an advertiser, has installed cookies linked with my domain that were not set explicitly by me. Unlike Form, however, these cookies don't appear to be intercepted anywhere before reaching my site because they show up in the list of cookies returned to my server. Google searches for the names of these cookies have shown that they Google searches for the names of these cookies have shown that they crop up all over the web in similar situations, all set to the first party domain, but not set explicitly by that domain. To date I haven't figured out what usefulness these cookies might serve. If they were set for my domain, how would the third party that set them even read them? The cookie specification should prevent that. It wasn't until your explanation about how form works that I saw the possibility of such a system working. However, I'm, I know my ISP doesn't use form, and these cookies have existed for a lot longer than the form storm has raged in the media. As a developer, it burns my biscuits to think that someone else is polluting my domain's cookie space with junk I didn't set. As a web server, it annoys me even further to think somebody other than the domain I'm visiting is infiltrating my browser. Either way, I'm not a happy camper, and I'm not sure that my visitors know about this. I'm sure if they did, they wouldn't be too happy either. The thought occurred to me. I don't particularly want my visitors to be tracked without their knowledge. Assuming some third party like Form is inserting cookies for my domain, what's to stop me from poisoning their cookies, stirring a little of my own arsenic into their dough, so to speak? After all, if these cookies are set for my domain, I have the capability and every right to overwrite them with whatever I want. I've toyed with the thought of testing for the existence of these cookies and, if present, resetting to something hopefully benign, such as all zeros for hex data or a common string for all users. I suspect that if the mysterious third party were then able to read these cookies somehow, all users who visit my site who previously had these cookies installed would then appear as the same person, or at least they'd get garbage in the cookie they would hopefully not be able to use. I wanted to do some code... Well, this is a long... <laughs> Let me take a breather. <laughs> I wanted to do some code tests with myself as a guinea pig before sending this to you, but unfortunately I haven't had time. I wanted to get this to you ASAP in hopes it might make it to you before this week's recording session. I do plan to carry out my experiments, and if you're interested, I could send you the results. The worst-case scenario I could foresee is that the third party and I will constantly overwrite each other's copy of the offending cookies. While this may taint the third party's data, it could also annoy the heck out of visitors who have their browsers set to notify them every time a cookie is being set. I certainly don't want that. Another possibility is I might be breaking some unseen usage agreement between myself and the third party. But personally, that might be a risk I'd rather take under the banner of protecting my visitors. I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts uh, to share. If you're curious, I've included the cookies at the bottom of this message. Oh, good, because I want to know what they are. 
If you'd like to investigate them further, also keep you updated on the results of my tests if you'd like to hear them. Thanks for many great episodes. Hopefully more to come from an avid listener and happy Spinrite customer. So who, what were those cookies, Steve Gibson? <laughs> okay, Leah, now you can take a break. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, I really liked his posting. I thought it was well-written, and I thought it was an interesting view. That is sort of, you know, the the view of this issue from from um, a webmaster's perspective, someone who's noticed that something is infecting his his domain with their cookies. I have a sneaking suspicion that this is something he's probably put on his site without recognizing the consequences. Um, I saw exactly this during the period of time that I had Google Analytics installed at GRC. There is, there is something known as a client-side cookie, which is distinct in browsers' minds from server cookies. And interestingly enough, servers cannot change client cookies without injecting code into the page in order to give them access to client cookies. So what's happening is, if, if you, um, you know how Google, for example, just to use them as an example, I don't know that these are the cookies that, 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 that this listener was seeing, but they bought some technology. I think it was Urchin. Yeah, Urchin that, is a, a statistics tech uh, program. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, what Google, that, that's what Google owns. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so if you, if you look at your own browser's cookies for you know, many sites, you'll see underscore UT somethings right, like UTMs, right. UT different things. And, and this is, the, this is the, the, unfortunately, the tracking technology, which anyone using Google's Google Analytics, which is extremely popular, and maybe Google Ads. I, I've not looked at it closely, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is not if it's not similar technology. Essentially, you have links in on your pages to JavaScript, which comes from Google's servers, and that script runs, and it's running um, in the context of the page, which is to say, in the in the context of the server that you are visiting that has hosted this page. And so script is able, JavaScript, for example, is able to set cookies as well. And I, I did some experimenting with this. It is not possible for the remote server to change those cookies because it's Cookies are it, it sort of exists in a separate namespace. They're server cookies as opposed to client cookies. Client cookies being set by scripts. So it is likely that you know we know that this guy's site is advertising based. If his if the ads if the ad insertion technology is script based rather than just link based. That is to say, you know some sometimes all you put is you 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 put a link to an image on the page. And then the remote advertising um, server simply supplies an image that, that fills in the box. However, naturally, we've seen an evolution of this technology so that increasingly people are putting their, their essentially advertisers require you to put some script on their page. Even even VeriSign, that little secured by VeriSign seal, um, I'm not using it in this dynamic fashion because it's script they want me to run whenever this little you oh, know, anime. Oh, it's not just a little banner. Right. Ah. And it's like, ah, 
I'd like to avoid that if at all yeah. possible. And that's why, that's why, frankly, that's why I removed the Google Analytics stuff from my site because I just I felt uncomfortable inviting Google to run whatever code they wanted on my pages. It's not static code that Google provides. I provide a link to their server, which every time the page loads goes and gets the code from them. So it just sort of seemed like something I didn't want to do. But it seems very likely to me that that's probably how these these first-party cookies are getting stuck into um, you know this guy's domain. Did you did you look at the cookies that he sent you? Um, no, unfortunately, our, he's unable to attach. Oh, he things can't attach things. Yeah, on our online form. Yeah. So. So, so that's the difference between a, a server side cookie and a client side cookie. He, right. If if you have a track, if you have a tracker on your site, it's setting cookies client side. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. If, if if you have tr- if you have a tracker that runs in a scripting way, right. it is setting client cookies. Essentially, your browser is running the code there on the page that sets the cookie locally, rather than it it being sent back and forth across the internet where the remote server sets the cookie. Okay. But from the point of view of privacy, that doesn't make any difference. Correct. It's yeah. still, sort of a, worse. still a cookie. Yep. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a little break. Uh, I want to mention a new sponsor on the show. Actually, I think I've, they've been on before. Go, uh, go to meeting. Have we had go to meeting on the show before? No, we never have. Well, we, we want to welcome them. You know them well because they're, they're Citrix, and I know you've been involved with Citrix in the past. Uh, they do that great go to my PC remote access. Go to meeting is a way that you can have online meetings. They make it very easy. No router configuration involved. It's very transparent. And frankly, if you're going to get a client to do an online meeting with you, it has to be easy for them. Let me tell you how easy it is. You set up GoToMeeting on your side. That takes a couple of minutes, a couple of clicks of the mouse. And then you have a plugin added to your Outlook, for instance, that you can send an invitation to a client or a colleague, anybody. I could send it to Steve if I wanted to. But, but you send them an invitation that has a meeting ID or a link, they just go to go to meeting and automatically when they go there with the meeting ID and they enter that ID, they'll see your computer screen once your meeting starts. So they see you doing the PowerPoint, the slideshow, showing documents, you know, we could be showing you our, our emails as we get them, whatever it is, or you can even collaborate on documents together. That's why you, it's good for use with a colleague. It's great for training because you can say, okay, I've got the program that we're going to train you on, on my machine. You don't have to have it on yours. I'm going to run that program. See, here's how you use it. Now you take control and you use it. And your client or your colleague is using it on your machine remotely. I mean, it's just amazing. Really easy to set up. Really secure. And because you pay one flat rate for unlimited use, it's very affordable. You meet as often as you want. You don't have to watch the clock. I want you to try it free for 30 days right now. Here's how you do it. You go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. Go to meeting, G-O-T-O, meeting.com slash security now and you could try it free for 30 days if you've tried other solutions and maybe you've been felt like gee this isn't for me i want you to try go to meeting it is so much easier so much more affordable and i'll tell you what with today's gas prices the trouble it takes to travel across the country all the issues that go on don't lose your laptop going to a meeting across the country for a powerpoint presentation do it with go to meeting you'll save time you'll save money and frankly these are more fun frankly for your clients too Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. All right, moving on. I had to take a little break after that long question. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for the next one if I can find it. Let's see. 
I've now now buried the question somewhere. Here it is. Okay. Number four. Gilbert Langvin. Langvin. I think there's a missing... uh, Looks like there's a missing um, vowel here. Gilbert Langvin in Le Le Gardeur, Quebec, Canada. Another form mitigation idea. Hi, Steve. First, great podcast. This is my first source of information about security. Now, about form. If we're using cookies allowed for session in Firefox, that allowed for, I'm not sure, is that a setting? I think it would reduce the effectiveness of form. Firefox could still remember that it will accept the cookies for a specific site, but deletes them when we close Firefox. Do you, do you know what he's talking about here, Steve? Yeah, essentially, there are, there are sort of two classes of cookies. Cookies can contain an expiration date where the cookie says, you know, keep me, right. br- it's telling the browser, keep me, an, or I am valid until the following date. Right. Well, so-called persistent cookies have dates far in the future because they want to be kept around as long as possible. Uh, there are, there's another class of cookie, though. Any cookie that does not contain the, an expiration date, it, by definition, is, is known as a session, session cookie. So it's only for this session. It's only until you clou- you close your browser mm-hmm, window, mm-hmm. and by by sort of universal agreement, and I've I've been pleased with how widely this approach has been adopted. Session cookies are never written to permanent storage; they're never written to hard disk. They're right. only kept in right. RAM. Right. So, so what Firefox allows, and some other browsers allow this also, or some add-ons do, they allow you to to force. What would otherwise be persistent cookies containing an expiration date, basically they strip the expiration date off the cookie, forcing it to be regarded as a session cookie. All cookies would then expire at the end of your session. Yes, and so 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 Gilbert is very right. If you were to configure this in that fashion, for example, or if, if, you're, if your browser allowed you to, for example, force these the WebWise cookies to always be session cookies. Ooh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, then what happens is it always thinks you're a new person every time you launch a new browser session, and it assigns you its, its random 16-byte um, ID and uh, profiles you only during this one session of using the browser and, you know, attempts to, you know, serve you useful ads if you happen to go to anyone who's using its advertising service. And then when you shut your window down and start it up again later – Again, you've lost the web the webwise cookie and says, "Oh, here's a new person." Gives you a new random cookie, and it you know basically it breaks the profiling for you know into individual browser length sessions, uh, and which is you know it it allows everything to work, yet no longer term tracking is being done. And you well, if if but can you? Is there any browser to let you do that? Is that unheard of? No, oh, there are allow allow for session features. We're going to be talking about cookies in painful detail here, uh, <laughs> with, with, uh, not long from now, okay. uh, because I think it's you know it, it it's something that has been known about for a long time. Different browsers have different features, and we'll we'll be covering those in an, in an upcoming episode. Right. Rick Nyman in Virginia had a clever form detection idea. I love your podcast. It got me into podcasts. I listen to it on my trio every week. He uses uh, something called Resco News to stream it. I'm not familiar with that. That's cool, though. How about adding an HTTPS link to Shields Up? That will look for any unknown cookies and flag possible form. Oh, interesting. The only issue is 
form may stop setting up cookies for GRC.com, you know, in order to avoid detection. If they could figure out you were doing it, they might they might not let you uh, do that. Well, this that's, this was under the category of great minds uh, think alike. Ah. I had I had posted this to our news groups uh, sometime last week because uh, it had occurred to me also that that any time a user came to GRC over an SSL connection, as we said last week, the form system is unable, thank goodness, to penetrate secure socket layer SSL connections. That is to say, HTTPS secure browser connections uh-huh. and and anytime co- someone comes to shields up they are briefly taken through an https session uh, as i also mentioned recently in order to avoid an isp's proxy and on in the process it avoids all of this form stuff ah. so so what occurred to me was the query that i received from them for the the secure page will show all the cookies, all the GRC cookies, including any form cookies that that may have been set by their, you know, a- anytime they were in non-SSL pages at GRC, and I could proactively notify visitors that they had uh, non-GRC cookies from anywhere that that GRC had not set, but something potentially nefarious had uh and that's a feature that's coming well good and i ought to mention also that we crossed the 80 million mark in uses oh. of shields in oh. uses of shields up it goes a couple days ago it's since we last spoke we, we congratulations went to, we're over 80 million and wow. and uses of shields up is way up too we're running like around ninety-five thousand individual users per day so why do you think that is? I, I know that several Linuxes are now including a mention of Shields Up uh, in their like you know test uh, test your firewall, test your security sort of thing. And I just think the, the word is spreading. You know, it, it takes time. That's really interesting. Huh? Uh, we've got a Steve Bradshaw in Bobbington, UK. He wonders how Microsoft knows so much. (laughs) Hi, Steve. Just finished listening to SN151, our last episode. You mentioned that the Malicious Software Removal Tool, or MRT, had encountered and removed 2 million copies of this game password-stealing software on Windows machines. Whilst this is good, of course, how does Microsoft know this unless MRT is phoning home to report what it does? Am I being naive here? Does XP phone home with such statistics often? If so... Did I agree to this one night after a glass too many of brain tonic? Thanks for the show. I genuinely find it invaluable, and I'm often amazed by how much I find useful in my everyday job working with IBM Power Systems and Blade Centers. Steve Bobbington from the UK. Steve from Bobbington, UK. Proud Spinrite owner. Well, this was an interesting question. So I did a little bit of research, mm-hmm. and sure enough, in the fine print which you click on, it informs you that Microsoft will be sending statistics back to them. Um, I did a little more digging and found the Knowledge Base article where on, on, under the topic of reporting infection information to Microsoft, it reads, the malicious software removal tool will send basic information to Microsoft if the tool detects malicious software or finds an error. This information will be used for tracking virus prevalence. 
No identifiable personal information that is related to you or to the computer is sent together with this report. So that's exactly so, uh, exactly it. Yep, they yeah. are they are doing some profiling just so they get feedback about what their what the MRT the malicious removal tool is doing. Hmm. Very interesting. James in Vancouver, BC, Canada, our our old stomping ground, Steve. Wonders about form-induced surfing overhead, or PISO. <laughs> Hi, Steve. I really enjoy, enjoyed the podcast with Leo regarding form. After listening to your discussion of how this tech works, I cannot help but wonder how much of it this, uh, how much of a hit this will have on internet browsing performance. This must impact the ISP's overall bandwidth as well. Yes. Well, it's interesting. Uh, one of the reasons that they run your browser through this dance is actually to minimize, well, to, to maximize tracking right. and minimize overhead. Certainly, if this was really providing or, or creating substantial overhead um, for, for all of the customers who use an ISP, the ISP would, 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 would be pushing back on this saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, this is, you know, is going to increase our bandwidth cost more than, than it's going to uh, justify itself in the money, the revenue that we receive as being a form hosting uh, internet service provider. So what they've done is by the first time you go to a site you've never been to, when you attempt to go there, you will not your the cookies for that site will not include one of Form's own cookies. So it'll run you through this triple redirection dance, which is actually it's very quick. I don't think most users would even notice it. At, but the the result of that is, of course, you it, they get the. The, the, the form netwise cookie from your browser and then they they use that to plant that into the the as a first party cookie in the site you were trying to get to then they let your browser try to get there again form sees that you've got the cookie and let and let lets it go by after that point after that one triple redirection dance the first time you visit a new site you will have their cookie for th their cookie for that site and then there's no overhead at all essentially your query goes to the isp it sees the cookie strips it out and and passes it on with with virtually no delay so they did do this in order to minimize the impact in surfing performance and the consumption of isp bandwidth the bottom line is it ends up being negligible doesn't make it any better in my opinion but at least it's it's not a, a constant problem hmm. Very interesting. Uh, let's see here. Andrew Sear near London notes, it's not just PayPal that makes life awkward for people who block double-click in their host's file. In the UK, the bank, Abbey, now uses double-click link-throughs on its homepage. See the lower graphics links to saving products on abbey.com. It's becoming pretty insidious. Wow, that's bad when a bank's doing that. It really, really is. Bad. I I went to his link. It's www.abbey.com. And sure enough, up comes the little happy homepage for a bank. And there's an ad down in the lower right of the page that's offering you some interest rate, something or other, 6.5% is the number that I remember from, from look, looking at it when I was assembling these. And you, if you float your mouse over it and look and you have a browser that shows you the link, sure enough, 
there's ad.doubleclick.net and a bunch of mumbo jumbo afterwards, which is truly disturbing because exactly as Andrew says, you know, here's here's an ad on the bank site, which is redirecting you through DoubleClick and then back to the Abbey site. I, I was curious to see whether the link took me to a third party to somewhere else. But indeed, it's back to Abbey. So, uh, I mean, it, it's that's really troublesome. Yeah, no kidding. Um, Santiago Rivera in Miami, Florida, mentions a very nice free Pascal. We were talking about Pascal, remember, uh, and Turbo Pascal in your Bill Gates anecdote. Um, and uh, he says, Steve, on the last Security Now episode, I heard you express your love for Pascal. I remember seeing a while back, there's still an open source, still supported Pascal compiler, Free Pascal. It's available at freepascal.org. Did you give it a try? Um, I did I did not have a chance to give it a try, but I checked it out, and I am very impressed. Oh, that's neat. It is it is supported across a huge array of platforms, uh, Windows, Linux, Mac. Not surprised, uh, by the way, that the open source community would do this. Oh, and it's it's a, it, it's like state of the art, syntax compatible with. Uh, it, it mentioned TP seven, so I assume that's Turbo Pascal seven. Oh yeah, and and, huh. and there's an object there's an object Pascal version. It's also uh, very compatible with Delphi. That is, of course, Borland's commercial version. Um, and it's, it's still alive. I think the most recent version is last month. So oh. I think I think it was June of '08 that they were that they were working on it and adding new features to it. So this is a project that is very much there. The reason I wanted to include this is that many people wrote saying, "Gee, you know, I've I really loved Pascal. They felt the way I did. They were happy to hear me mention it and said, I wish there was one." That, you know, I'd like to kind of poke around at Pascal again. So I wanted to tell all of our listeners about freepascal.org, where there is a, you know, open source, very nice looking project. That's really good to know. That's really neat. I'll, I'll download it and try it. I haven't written in Pascal in ages. You know, most of, the, a- most of the original uh, Macintosh stuff was Pascal. Uh, yep. If you worked on the Mac, you worked in Pascal pretty much. Yep. In fact, all of the Lisa stuff was Pascal. That's right. Which, yeah. Yep. Although, uh, they were basing it on small talk because it was all small talk originally. Chris right. Noble in Wellington, New Zealand asks the important and obvious question of the week. I need a drum roll. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Thanks for your recent episode on form. Scary, but good to be informed. The trouble is now I want to know how to tell if this is happening. Is there a way to tell if your ISP is doing something dodgy by inspecting cookies or some other process such as header data inspection? Thanks again for all your hard work and a wonderful resource. You know, that's a great question, and that is, I mean, and I'm sure listeners of last week's form episode and the the one two weeks before are saying, wait a minute, how do I know if this is happening? Yeah. Well, um, all browsers, except maybe IE, I don't think IE has a cookie viewer. Um, there is a very good cookie viewer called, not surprisingly, IE Cookie View, uh, <laughs> I think it's by the my, the, the guy at Ner, at Nearsoft N I R S O F. Oh yeah, he's good. Yeah, I like I like his stuff a he lot. He does a lot it's of good l- stuff. Yeah, very good and lightweight. In fact, I'm using it with IE. Uh, you know, during the, the 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 cookie development work that I'm doing because it lets me see what's going on. But I know that Opera and Firefox and you know all of the Mozilla descended browsers do give you. Oh, even uh, Safari does the ability to see your cookies. 
um, what you can do is if you just look at the actual cookies that your browser has for a bunch of domains, you know, CNN, CNET, MSNBC, you know, Microsoft, whatever, if if something is there that is installing first-party cookies in every domain you visit, you will see a common link between all of the cookies that you've got. That is, you know, most sites have an, an arbitrary cookie format that they made up. You know, GRC is using cookies um, only for the sake of, of this technology that I'm developing, which will shortly be notifying people if third-party cookies are enabled on their browser when they come to GRC. And so, you know, I made up my own format for my cookies, my own cookie names and, and, and cookie values, and pretty much everybody does. So if you saw something that was common in the cookies that you your browser had across many different websites, that would immediately tip you off that there was some common factor that was linking otherwise separate sites together, and it would have to be something like uh, a form technology. Hmm. Very interesting. Calvin, maybe not his real name because you put it in quotes, Yep, <laughs> located at an international airport, recounts the inter interesting story. Interesting story of the week. Hello, Stephen Leo. I'm an IT person at a medium-sized international airport, and I have a story to share. One day, recently, I noticed that our pool of DHCP addresses were completely used up. This is unusual, as we normally have about twenty percent of our addresses available at any given time. That's not a lot. I mean, I guess he's using most of them. Upon closer inspection. I saw all kinds of computers and devices I didn't recognize taking leases from our DHCP servers. An abnormally high number of devices were iPhones, but there were also computers with names like John's Laptop, etc. Every time I tried to ping one of these devices, it was no longer attached to the network, which made it difficult to figure out their location and how they were getting onto our network. Not having any live rogue devices on the network made troubleshooting difficult. I won't go into the details of how I finally figured out how the source of the problem. It turned out one of our office wireless access points had mysteriously become wide open. The WAP, whoops. <laughs> whoops. The WAP had been configured with WPA, and I'd even used GRC's ultra-high security password generator to create the key. But now that the key was blank and the wireless access point was wide open, this WAP is located in a conference room that shares a common wall with the airport passenger screening area. How convenient for the passengers. <laughs> it, did, it didn't take long to put two and two together and realize that people queued up for airport security screening were still attaching to our network. Because of the nature of the queuing area, I don't think anyone was intentionally connecting or even realized that they had connected. It's true. I think an, uh, an iPhone, if there's an unprotected Wi-Fi access point, it'll just join it automatically. That's yeah, free Wi-Fi while you're going through airport screening. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, airport. They would go through the airport screening area and continue on with their life not knowing they connected to our network. That would also explain why none of the devices were live when I tried to locate them. The problem was the WAP turned out to be that it had reset itself back to factory defaults. I didn't want to have to climb up in the ceiling to replace the WAP. So I quickly reconfigured it back to its formerly secure state. Upon restarting the WAP, it was back to default settings again. Whoops. Apparently, this device, for some unknown reason, stopped holding any configuration that was given to it. It wasn't a high-end device. It wasn't low-end either. It was a business class model WAP, wireless access point. Needless to say, I had to climb into the ceiling to replace it. I felt it a bit disconcerting that a business class WAP 
would reset itself to factory defaults upon a failure and that those defaults would be zero security, wide open wireless operation. Thanks for the great show. For obvious reasons, I can't give you my real name and city, but I'm signing off with the name Calvin because of Calvin and Hobbes, my hero of mischief. Wow, that's interesting. I guess if, if, if CMOS could no longer hold memory, you know, just out of age or something, that it would, def- it would have to default to the default settings. Yeah, um, I guess I guess my point is, or, or the, the reason I thought that this was interesting is, it is certainly the case that routers today are shipping with no security yeah. by default. Right. Well, however, this thing could ship with wireless off by default. That would that be is, much better, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that instead of instead of wireless being on and you know like all the services being on when you do a full reset, why not have the default state be wireless off so that in any situation like this where the router gets reset, it'll reset and shut down rather than reset and open up. Right. So we could wish. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you, you, any device is going to at some point or could at some point fail to hold its settings. I mean, that's just the nature of technology, right? These, right. these chips sometimes just uh, won't hold settings. Um, so it's really what happens when it can't, what, what the failover is that's important. And Precisely. I agree with you. It's got to have a much more secure <laughs> failover. Uh, I understand why it wouldn't fail over to wireless on uh, with a, a, a WPA password because you wouldn't know what the password is. Correct. Although I guess it could have like a standard one or something like that. And you wouldn't want that either because then it's uh, subject to brute force attack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And anybody could know that. Yeah. Hey, let's take a break before we get to our uh, final question. As usual, you've you've loaded us up with something kind of fun. The the, uh, horror story and fix of the week coming up in just a second. But right now I want to mention audible.com. They're our sponsors and great people and you know, I, I made a trip out there, and I've become big fans of the Audible folks now that I've met them all, and I'm really glad that they support our shows. I got a, um, I got a, a tweet, and I've been trying to find it. I finally found it from uh, a guy named S. Burton, who's a listener, who said, I've got a great Audible pick for you. Now, this isn't a book I've read, but I like Dan Brown. Have you ever read Angels and Demons uh, or his uh, you know, very popular uh, what is it? Uh, you know the other one that he wrote that was big, the uh, conspiracy, the 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 the. the and why can't I remember that? Anyway, I'm not familiar with the author. author oh at all. yeah, you know the Da Vinci Code. That's it. Oh okay, you, you know you know Dan Brown. Yeah, he, he wrote a book uh, about uh, encryption technology called Digital Fortress. He wrote uh, uh, a couple of years ago. I'd never heard of. It. I guess this came out before the Da Vinci Code. The NSA's invincible code-breaking machine encounters a mysterious code it cannot break. The agency calls its head cryptographer, Susan Fletcher, a brilliant, beautiful mathematician. What she uncovers sends shockwaves through the corridors of power. The NSA is being held hostage by an encryption code so powerful that if released, it would cripple U.S. intelligence. It sounds great. It sounds like a real pot boiler. So this is, a, this is going to be our recommendation for our security-conscious Listeners, I'll play a little bit of uh, of this. This is Dan Brown, read by Paul Michael. It is uh, unabridged. There's abridged and unabridged as well. Good afternoon, Commander. Hoping for a younger man? The voice chuckled. No, sir, Susan said, embarrassed. It's not how it... Sure it is, he laughed. David Beck- Code, I think, Paul Michael. This sounds really f- a familiar voice. 
and uh, did a great job. That's how I read The Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown, if you liked Angels and Demons and The Da Vinci Code, Digital Fortress combines encryption, the NSA, and his usual uh, really exciting thriller writing. 11 hours and 52 enjoyable minutes and yours absolutely free if you're not yet an Audible member when you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now and sign up. You get a credit towards a a book of your choice, and this could be it with many, many books, 50,000 to choose from in every category, business, classics, education, history, thrillers, lots of sci-fi. They're really increasing the sci-fi, and I'm really pleased with that. Now, all of a sudden, I have a lot of books on my list to read. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. And now, Steve, are you ready? I'm ready. It is time. For our horror story and fix of the week. <laughs> this is from Ruan Villoen in Cape Town, South Africa. And he writes, Hi, Steve. In a previous episode, you mentioned how important it is to make sure your router's default username and password is updated. Or changed, anyway. Uh, luckily, I had this in place, but was shocked to find that my router's admin interface was exposed to the internet on my public IP, leaving it open to a brute force attack. Initially, I thought... Maybe this was only allowable from, you know, accessible from my own machine on this IP, but asking a friend to log in from his home proved successful. The most annoying part of all this is that my router has a setting to hide the admin interface from the Internet and only enable it on my local LAN, and this hiding was enabled. That's that, you know, turn off WAN administration, which we recommend. Steve's recommended that many times. But apparently, uh, even when I, uh, you know, did that, it didn't work too well. In the end, the work around this problem was setting up a NAT rule to forward all traffic on port 80 to a non-existing IP on my local LAN. Wow. This seemed to work. My interface is now only accessible to me. Regards from a rainy Cape Town, South Africa. Have you ever heard of this? Isn't that the WAN administration port? Isn't that what we're talking about here? Yes, that's exactly what it is. And I was horrified to hear that there are any routers out in the world. Um, this guy has one uh, that apparently ignore the, the setting for disable WAN access. Oh, that's terrible news. So I wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. And the first thing I was thinking, well, you know, have a friend attempt to log on to your IP, except it's kind of hard to know what your public IP is, and maybe you don't want to expose this problem to right. anyone. Right. Um, one thing you can do co- conveniently is use ShieldsUp at GRC.com to scan your service ports and port 80 is where you know the wan uh the wan port will be and unless you know you're running a web server on port 80 in which case you've already got this uh, an external port mapped through to your web server um unless you know you're running a web server on port 80 this it should either be closed or probably stealth you should not see port 80 open and if by any chance port 80 is open and you're not running a web server, then it's your router that is unfortunately accepting connections on its web port from the public Internet. And you definitely don't want that to be the case, especially if it's, you know, serving up your login, um, uh, your, your, your login page, which would then allow anybody to sit there and Try to guess what your username and password was. And, of course, that makes it doubly bad if you'd left them to, to their default settings. Right, right. Wow, I'm shocked. You know, I guess it means that those of us who uh, use wireless routers and have turned off WAN administration might want to test this to make sure that we've got it uh, set up properly. 
Well, yeah, that's my point. Is in fact, I would ask our listeners. Uh, I'm going to try. If they, if, wow. Yeah, if they haven't gone to Shields Up and made sure that Port 80 is closed, so that's all any, you had to do is just go to Shields Up. Yeah, just use Shields Up. It'll it'll show you. Don't have you to a try bit. to log in or anything. No, it, it you should not have Port 80 open. This okay. guy would have had Port 80 open, which is how his friend was able to go to his IP and bring up his login page. Shields Up would show you that port open. But I wanted to ask our listeners, if we have any other listeners who encounter this problem, please go to grc.com slash feedback and let me know and put something in the subject line so that I'll be sure to see it. Because I would love um, 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 this individual did not tell us what brand of router. Yeah, we want to know. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is a serious problem. I'm going to go there right now. I'm using a Linksys. Um, but I'm pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure I don't get my port 80s open there. I mean, that, I, I would have noticed that. I always use GRC's Shields Up. GRC.com. That's the place to go. Uh, not only for Shields Up. I'll, I'll actually run my. Uh, you, if you do common ports, port 80 will be in there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll run that right now. Just just check. And while I'm doing that, oh, whew, stealth. <laughs> I invite you to go to GRC.com. Not only to do that, everybody do that and let us know if you find a router that doesn't uh, doesn't comply. Uh, make sure you have WAN administration turned off, though. Um, and then you'll also go there to get show notes, 16 kilobit versions of the show. Steve makes those available for people with uh, limited bandwidth and, and some transcriptions, too. Elaine does those, and uh, that's a great way to follow along. GRC.com. That is Steve's site. And by the way, while you're there, get a copy of Spinrite. It's a great tool for maintaining. It's the tool for maintaining your hard drives and often very useful in data recovery too. Spinrite, S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E, from grc.com. Steve, it's been a great 12 questions. What are we going to do next week? Got some We've planned? Got uh, well, yeah, I want to, we're going to do our last show talking about this problem with ISP spying nightmares. Uh, there's a neat guy who's been very active over in the UK who has really, you know, he, I, I think I mentioned he sent you email. He sent email to my office. He, he posted it on our web, on, 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 in, in our um, user group um, uh, news server. Uh, he's on the inside of sort of the whole social, political, legal battle going on about form. And I thought it'd be fun to have him on as, as a special guest since Excellent. he really knows from the front line what's happening. And I'm going to talk then also a little bit about Nebuad just because it turns out it's bad too. And, uh, you know, it's another one of the, the you know, the really uh, obnoxious um, companies that are inserting their technology into ISP facilities. Right, right. Well, I look forward to that. That'll be episode 153, and it'll be up uh, on uh, next Thursday, a week from uh, today. If you want to watch live, we actually do these live on Tuesday, and you can watch it live at twitlive.tv. We do it at 11 a.m. Pacific time. That's 2 p.m. Eastern time, or uh, let's see, uh, 1800 UTC. Uh, and so you can watch live and chat in the chat room, and I watch the chat room. Sometimes we get some suggestions from there, too. And you can see Steve's smiling face. The whole reason to watch live. Look at that. <laughs> hey, thanks, Steve. We'll talk again uh, next week on Security Now. Thanks, Steve. We'll talk to you then. Security Now.